0: Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Lift the Sink, a podcast that discusses all things related to writing. I'm Paddy Dotterdy, and first of all I'd like to thank everyone who listened to the first episode and spread the word about the show online. And of course a special thanks to all those who submitted their work to the podcast I really enjoyed reading everything and I can honestly say that each submission gave me something to think about. In the end, the story that's going to feature in this week's episode is called Forget Me Not by Monica Wang. So big congratulations to Monica and more on that later. First I'd like to discuss something that's been on my mind. I read somewhere that reading makes you more empathetic. Uh, Is this really true? I've been wondering lately what it is I get out of reading. Because it's become something that I do compulsively. Sometimes I find myself anxious to finish a book just so that I can start the next one, no matter how enjoyable the one I'm reading actually is. Uh, I guess my point is that it's starting to feel less like a passion and more like a, an addiction. Uh, I don't know how I benefit from all this reading. Like, I used to have political and moral convictions as a younger person, and now I'm hopelessly confused and approaching apathy. The more I read on these issues, the more ignorant I feel about them, or the more their complexity and inscrutability discourages me from forming opinions. There are some subjects that require more lifetimes than I can afford to live. That's why I'm not sure whether reading has made me more empathetic, rather more detached and passive, a more sophisticated voyeur, perhaps. I consume history, philosophy and literature as entertainment. Art is supposed to represent life, enhance our experience and understanding of it, but surely not outshine it. Yet at times I find myself utterly obsessed with its representation and indifferent to the very thing itself. I can honestly say that the world reaps nothing from my enlightenment, if you will. I think I'm just a sucker for a good sentence. And now for our featured story in episode two, Forget Me Not by Monica Wang is a story of someone coping with loss. I was struck by its dark humour and the uh, almost parasitic nature of the protagonist as she travels from home to home, sort of insisting that her friends ignore their own problems and and only reckon with her loss. I found this an intriguing defence mechanism and it's very well articulated in this story. So again, big thank you to Monica for submitting. Forget Me Not by Monica Wang Grieving alone was dull work. This thought plagued Rui some time after Ben's passing. It was also a waste. She had so much wisdom to share now, with so many friends she'd forgotten during her marriage. Rui was having tea with Yvonne for the second time this week. She would have dropped by every day this month had Yvonne kept her kitchen better stocked and talked less about her own problems. She was talking now. Rui waited. Yvonne paused and looked at her. Forgive and forget said Rui. She said more after that. She couldn't remember her words later on, but she felt she had spoken well. Her greatest advice to Yvonne was, in the grand scale of life, what mattered in fidelity? Wasn't it better that Stan came back to her every time, rather than leaving for good with his colleague? Or, as Ben did, in death. At least Yvonne wasn't alone. Rui didn't have to be alone the following week either. It was a bad time for Cam Ting, who struggled with mortgages and migraines. Dreary stuff. Rui stayed anyhow, so Cam Ting wouldn't feel like a bad friend, and at the end of the week, left a magnanimous post-it on the stick of used towels. Something about counting blessings for the expenses that Cam Ting didn't have, like a husband's funeral costs, or a husband's anything. Rui phrased it more subtly, of course, and at the last minute crossed out the part about Cam Ting's broke ex. Think how much worse it would have been. Rui wasn't sure whether she was thinking of the right ex. She stopped thinking of Ben at least in the seconds she gazed upon Gwendolyn's house. The wild park isn't part of the property, said Gwen, seeing Rui's expression. Only a small offshoot of the river runs through the backyard. How can she afford this? Is artistic director even a real paying job? Rui did not ask this out loud. Gwen had sounded as if she harboured a grudge over their last falling out. You said you never wanted to speak to me again, said Gwen, when the subject arose. She poured Rui another cup of tea before picking up her own glass. You called me, uh... did I? Rui said. It was so long ago. No point holding on to negativity, right? She leaned forward and slapped Gwen on the upper arm. I never do. Gwen set down her glass and wiped the coffee table. Anyway... She met Rui's eyes. I wanted to say, I figured you weren't up to phone calls and emails then, but now I can say it in person. I'm so sorry about Ben. Are you doing all right? How are you holding up? Oh, just barely, said Rui. But friends keep me busy. I thought actually this week I could catch up with you here. If you'd let me know sooner. Gwen looked distressed. "'This week isn't the best for me. My mother has... "'You have so much room. How much could I take up?' Rui laughed. "'Then she looked solemn. "'Gwen, don't make me stay in the house where my husband died.' "'Gwen felt sorry. Confused, too, "'as she recalled hearing about Ben's fishing accident. "'Before she found a response, Rui moved on. "'How did you do so well with yourself? Look at this place.' "'At the start, I was sharing this house with other artists.' Gwen said. Amazing. You know, I could use some of that. Rui fluttered her fingers in the air. Hippie artist magic myself these days. It wasn't magic. My sister and I put a lot of work into the gallery. Your sister? Interrupted Rui. Didn't her husband also pass away a few years back? How did she get over that? At dusk, a solitary figure crossed Gwen's backyard and entered the wild park. Rui... Shivering, in a crumpled cotton dress from the back of her friend's closet, held out a lantern before her, at waist level. She stumbled, the lantern also Gwen's, contributed more bulk than light, and its iron handle chafed her palms. Her hair, now loose, caught on most of the branches she passed. All were necessary to the magic, Gwen had said. Near the stream she set down the lantern by a clump of blue flowers. For the past several hours she had spoken of Ben, of problems with her ageing body. She only ever remembered her own and Ben's birthdays, but she figured Gwen was old enough to empathise, and of her years of friendship with Gwen, though she couldn't recall anything in particular from those years. What mattered was that her listener remembered their shared past, and Gwen likely had, for by evening time she agreed to make magic for Rui, magic that would change her life. For this, Rui needed 99 sprigs of forget-me-nots, no two from the same plant. After the first six, she felt her knees shaking. She wondered if it was the magic kicking in or just her lack of exercise. At thirty forget me nots, the forest transformed into a bluish haze. Fifty, sixty, she kept forgetting the number and recounting with stiff hands. Her legs no longer felt the autumn chill. Insects, drawn by the lamplight, stayed to sting her bare arms and face. When she pulled the ninety ninth forget me not out of the dirt, root system and all, Rui forgot all things but one. She didn't know why she was kneeling by herself in the dark, in the cold, in what appeared to be a park. She got to her feet, straggly weeds falling from her lap and grasp. Under the moonlight, she saw only faint outlines of the stream. Rui's mouth opened. The water reminded her of her loss. Nothing reminded her of anything else. She had been alone for ninety-nine days. She would be alone forever. So that was Forget Me Not by Monica Wang. Monica is a Taiwanese-Canadian woman and she has had other work published in Green Hill's Lantern, literary magazine, uh, Electric Literature, The Thames Review and a few other publications. So big thank you to Monica for sharing her story with uh, the podcast. Now let's move on to what I've been reading of late. First up is David Brennan and his novel Up or Down, published by Epoch Press. This is one of the few books I read uh, in 2019 that was actually published in 2019. So what can I say about it? Well, it's a modern retelling of the tale of the Pied Piper of Hamelin and is narrated by a mathematician who was at once addled by his inability to solve a mathematical conundrum known as the Riemann Hypothesis, as well as his inability to prove that the recently arrived Piano Man is indeed behind the disappearance of his town's children. I must admit, I found this book a little bit difficult at first. The plot and characters are quite jumbled up and the story goes off on strange tangents that I I struggled to follow initially. I think because I was reading it in search of a kind of linear narrative, which isn't exactly what you're going to get. However... Once I stopped reading for for plot or for story and started reading more for voice, I began to enjoy this novel so much more. It really is a lyrical feast. The character is so beautifully drawn, plagued by feelings of guilt, doubt and failure, yet driven with some vague notion of redemption and revenge. He's an outsider who would love to be accepted by his townspeople, but ultimately would never compromise himself in order to do so. It's a hard novel to summarise or even critique, but it really has to be read to be believed. Um, I just want to read to you a short passage from the book that just, it's among many, but it's just to give you a little sample of what you can expect, because I think it will it'll give you a better idea of, uh, of how, how great the writing is in this book. Man is on the way out. Mark my fucking words, says Morley as he grabs another lamb. We is losing the taste for the things we don't want to do. But we all got to do things we don't want to do. Sure isn't that growing up, Professor? Isn't that what being human is all about? I do not disagree. I wallows in these moments and lose myself to the trappings of me mind, brimming and boiling am I, like a pot of water, piping hot into the movements of clarity so bright that I thinks I might go blind. In these moments I forget the ever-present din of the primes. And what a relief it is to be away from them. We are like lovers who have been tied together for too long, wallowing in each other's dirt and disease. Our love has soured to hate and all the spectrums in between. Though also present is the fear that my existence will be nothing without their shadow behind me. I is alone. I is lost. I is the detriment. I is the foul odour that rots the carcass of an abandoned beast, cast out on the roadside, covered in the juices of death and all her ilk. Some day you might understand this place I'm talking about, for we all, yes, we all, go through this in one form or another. Every man will know despair. Every man will witness death and rebirth and like cycles of a great big engine. Yes we will be crushed by the wheels and buried in the cogs. Yes our juices may only provide lubrication for something much greater than ourselves. Then so be it. Accept this role and be glad of your sacrifice. What more do you expect? Who promised you such things? "'What great liar filled your mind with such nonsense? "'Wicked, wickedness. "'You cannot and will not escape them. "'You should turn round right now "'and instead of running from them, embrace them "'as if they were long-lost brothers. "'Yes, wickedness, divinity, sleeping in the wings, "'hustling in the stars, "'whispering to the windows of the soul of souls.' These are the places you must go to, the songs you must seek, and the desperation you must overcome. The land is full of idleness, the sinners in droves, hanging off street corners, sucking on resentments and desperation, gouging out each other's souls to make a penny for a shot of the taste of greatness. But greatness is an elusive thing, I be thinking I. Yes, greatness be hard to come by. You want a shot at that, you got to be willing to saw off your arm, and there's not many have the stomach for that. So here's to your greatness. Right before you, well within your reach, but what you got to do to get it is what you least want to do. All the things you wished for, gotten and lost, pile up upon you with a great weight, till the very act of breeding becomes difficult. Greatness then is wishing for more, despite your joints crumbling and your muscles tearing. Yes, I hears you. Greatness is not without its flavour of madness.' Yes, and here I am, rambling on about greatness and I afraid to go into Nolan's shop since the time Mulligan led me down the corridor and betrays me to the piano man. I knows I, I've always been a coward. So that's just a quick sample of Up or Down from David Brennan and I think the writing speaks for itself. It's just, it's full of little passages like that and the inner, the inner turmoil of this character and it's, I think as you as can tell, it's, beautifully, beautifully written. It's fantastic. And I totally recommend it to everyone. And the other writer that I've been reading recently, and this is someone I've kind of discovered or rediscovered over the last uh, year or so, is Jennifer Johnston. Uh, I first came across her writing when I was 12 or 13 years old. And my brother was doing uh, how many miles to Babylon for the insert. I remember picking it up and reading it in a matter of days. And this book has always kind of been in the back of my head ever since I read it and especially since I started writing myself, because there's this description of a piano teacher in the opening pages that has kind of haunted me for my entire life. I think it's because it was the first time I really noticed what writing was and what writers were actually doing. So I'm going to give you a little sample. It goes like this. There was also the piano teacher who used to come down once a week on the train from Dublin. I remember little about him except for his ineffectiveness as a teacher and the reason for his going. My mother would come into the drawing room towards the end of each lesson and sigh restlessly from her chair, fretted by my lack of progress. He was a nervous man who became almost insane in her presence. His hands would shake, and he would begin to tear distractedly at dark stains of hardened food that decorated the front of his jacket as he watched me play. The drawing-room smelt of applewood and turf, and in the autumn, the bitter end of the year, smell of chrysanthemums, which stood in pots massed in one of the deep bay windows, shades of yellow, gold, bronze, and white, like a second fire in the room. The black ebony case of the Steenway Grand reflected the flowers— The music teacher was ridiculously out of place. He rose and approached my mother, bowing at her as he crossed the floor. Masses of golden birds flew in gigantic curves on the blue carpet under his sad shoes. It must have been autumn, because the smell of the flowers and his words are tangled together in my mind. Yes, ah, yes. He comes along very nicely, the little fellow. You do notice, yes, progress. I feel, I do hope you are being... His faded eyes twitched as he spoke. His finger picked and picked. Soon I thought silently, there will be a hole. Satisfied, he bent low over her as she spoke the word. She moved her head slightly away from him. Oh yes, progress. Of a kind, I suppose. She waved him away with her hand and he straightened up. I sat at the piano unmoving. I had developed a technique of listening to a fine art. I could become, at will, as still and visible as a chair or a bowl of flowers. Such a deal of your talent, Mrs. Moore, has rubbed off on, um, the, the little fellow. Overcome suddenly by the thought of the stains, he spread his grey-long fingers over the front of his coat. Like two very dead starfish on a beach, I played an arpeggio softly and my mother waved her hand towards the door. Your train, Mr. I mean, you mustn't miss... No, no, of course not. Well... He paused and looked around the room, as if he were trying to memorise it for use during his darker days. I'll be on my way so. Time and, oh, trains wait for no man. He bowed once more to my mother. She smiled with her lips, but her eyes passed him by. He turned to me. And you, young fellow me lad, till Tuesday, mind your practice now. He moved towards the door. Suddenly I felt some sort of emotion towards him. I no longer remember what it was. I slipped off the chair and followed him out of the room and across the dark back hall. In the semi-darkness, he reached out with a hand and squeezed my shoulder gently. Such a beautiful woman, God lover. so... Words failed him. What a lucky little felony lad you are to have a beautiful mammy like that. Have you a coat? I pulled with both hands at the brass doorknob and the door came open, letting in the east wind. Some letters fluttered on the long mahogany table and shocked flames twisted for a moment out of the grate and then recovered their equilibrium. Coat! No, no coat, Sonny. He gave a little laugh. I never feel the cold. A lie, I thought. He was a man I'd have said who had never felt warm in his life, or well, or momentarily gay. He stepped bravely out into the evening and bowed once more before going down the steps. That was an excerpt from How Many Miles to Babylon by Jennifer Johnston. Not long ago, I saw an interview she gave around the time that she received her Lifetime Achievement Award from Impact. She was talking about what it felt like to find out that there were other people out there, people who had nothing to do with her, that thought she could write. She went on to say that finding that audience was more exciting to her than the birth of her first child. And the interviewer felt the need to stop her and say, hold on, is that that an expression or is that true? To which she just looked at him with a baffled look upon her face and said, it's true. And uh, I think I fell in love with her a little bit more when I heard her say that. The fact that she would so openly admit that this personal goal meant that much to her. And that's probably why she is such a great writer, that she actually literally loves writing more than she loves her family. I've been going through her back catalogue recently and so far she hasn't written a bad book. They are all so accomplished, dark, melancholic, and utterly readable. The Captain and the Kings is a masterpiece. It's as good as any other Irish novel that's ever been written. And there's other ones as well, such as The Old Jest and Fool's Sanctuary, and of course, the How Many Miles to Babylon, which I've already read from. Uh, and I, I like to think of Jennifer Johnson as being a little bit unsung. And I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but maybe it's just, I don't hear that much about her really in talked about in... in the canon of Irish writing, or not to the extent that I think she deserves to be talked about. She's kind of like, for me, the Dennis Irwin of Irish literature. Quiet, unassuming, but consistently effective at the highest level, more so than I think anyone else I've read from Ireland. Anyway, that's just, uh, I said I'd like to talk about her today a little bit. And finally, that's it for today. I think I'm just going to finish up by saying thank you to everyone who's contributed to the show, uh, Monica Wang, uh, David Brennan, and, uh, unwittingly, Jennifer Johnston. (laughs) And uh, uh, I'll be back to you guys with episode three very soon. Just keep an eye on my Twitter uh, profile to see when I'll be open for submissions, but it won't be long. Okay, thank you and enjoy whatever the hell you do with yourself.